But here's what I want to do. I want to spend our time together in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. If you have a Bible with you, either paper or um, electronic, if you have iPhone, iPad, um, Galaxy, uh, anything with a Bible on it, all manner of iness uh, with a Bible on it, then go to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. And there we're going to spend a little time. So what I'd like to do in this first um, installment of what we'll be sharing is just have somebody focus on the first two verses. Somebody stand where you are and read Joshua 1, verses 1 and 2 for us, please. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Okay. All right. So you're probably familiar, if you're a Bible reader at all, you're probably familiar with the fact that Joshua is the successor to Moses. Moses was raised up by God to deliver God's people, Israel, from bondage, the bondage of slavery in Egypt. You all know that. Now, how many years were they there? Does anybody know? In, in Egypt, I'm sorry. Huh? 400, 400 years. H-U-N-I-D, 400 years. That's a long time to be in bondage, to be in slavery, to not be able to do what you were called to do, what you were destined to do. Hundreds of years there, God raised up Moses, and Moses' job was to go to Pharaoh and say, God said, let my people go. Pharaoh, of course, resisted, and God said, that's all right, I'm going to show him who I am. And you know the story of how God did that, how God used miracle after miracle, sign after sign, so that Pharaoh got to see up close and personal that this God is a God I cannot withstand. And eventually, you know the story of the Exodus, you've read that book, you know, eventually and, and grudgingly, Pharaoh released them. Here's the real tragedy. After the generation that Moses led came out of Egypt, they came across the Red Sea on dry land. When they got on the other side of the Red Sea, you would think, they're like, thank God we are finally able to go where we've been destined to go. And the reality is they did a good job of getting out, but they did a horrible job of going in. They got out of bondage, out of slavery. It's not as bad as it has been, but when they got over into the wilderness, and they began to think about the fact that God said, 
Well, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan as your inheritance. They began to look at things God never told them to look at. To wonder about things God never told them to wonder about. And we're going to spend this time looking at how the second generation had to do what the first generation didn't have the courage to do. I want to say that a bunch of us sitting in here today, in a lot of ways, are second generation people. Not necessarily meaning you were raised by Christian parents who didn't do everything God said for them to do. That's not, that's not what's on my mind at all. I'm simply saying it is a mindset that there is a generation of Christians who to date have been satisfied coming out of sin but never going into what God really had for them. There are a lot of Christians who they love their fire insurance. They love fire insurance. I'm not going to hell. Well, praise God, you're not going. But you think Jesus shed his blood just to give you fire insurance? You think that's the whole point of this, to keep you out of hell? Well, hell wasn't even created for you in the first place. Created for the devil and his angels. If you go there, you got to go there over grace, over the blood, over common sin. You got to go, you got to do some hard work to get to hell. It's not made for you. It was for those that rebelled in the presence of God. They rebelled and fell from heaven. Lucifer, you know the story. He was an angelic being of the highest order. He was the worship leader. And, and it, was re, it was created for them. All of those that fell out of rebellion, deliberate defiance and rebellion against God. If you go, that makes no sense at all. What do you have to, what you got to do that you need hell? Oh, man, there's some stuff I want to do. I don't care. I'm going to go to hell afterwards. What kind of nonsense is that? There's pleasure in sin for a season, but after that, there's no paycheck. So we've got to understand that there have been, there have always been, since the Old Testament, there have always been people who were okay with getting the bare minimum of what God had to offer them. And in their case, in Moses' case, that generation, they said, we don't want any more of this slavery, so we, we're getting out of there. But once they got over in the wilderness, they start murmuring and complaining. You've read it. Where's the water over here? If God could put the, a whole sea up on two walls of water and create a dry turnpike for y'all to come out of sin, come out of Egypt and slavery and go over, if God can do that, you think water's a problem? But they weren't able to think about who God was. They only thought about what they wanted. 
And instead of exercising faith and saying, Lord, we thank you because if you loved us enough to get us out of there, we're going to trust you for water over here. No, no, they complained and murmured, started talking and complaining, just like church folk. Not, not lineage, but other churches. In fact, everywhere else in the country I've ministered except there are people who have the gift of murmuring and complaining. I mean, it's just one of their spiritual gifts, and they exercise it regularly. Fact of the matter is, God couldn't get that first generation out of the wilderness. So while for 400 years, generations of them were slaves, and finally Moses came and got the last of those 400 years worth of generations and was able to get them out. But while he could get them out, they had no faith to get in to what he ordained for them. So I came up here in the wilderness with y'all to ask you, is the wilderness in your life okay? Because if it is, God will let you stay there. God does not make people go to the promised land. He only invites them. If you want the wilderness, you can have it. So 400 years, people stayed in slavery against their will. But 40 years, that last generation that came out of slavery chose to stay in the wilderness, uh, stay in mediocrity, stay in somewhere. God said, Moses, I'm going to let you take the people into the promised land. And when the people heard about that, they said, no, we're not going. There are too many potential problems and obstacles, challenges, and questions we can't answer and things we can't figure out. We're not going to go. Here's what happens. That generation that decided they would rebel and stay put, they had kids who grew up. And their kids grew up saying, I thought y'all told me we serve a big God. If this God is so big, why is my address in the desert? The kids grew up and couldn't figure it out. Like, wait, wait. We serve a, a mighty God who can do anything? Y'all said he brought you through a sea on dry land? And my pets are scorpions? They couldn't figure it out. How do you serve a big God who can't do any better than this? Doesn't make any sense. But you know what? We who say we are followers of God often don't realize 
that our own lack of faith prevents us from experiencing everything he has for us. So God has a lot he wants to give his people, but it's up to them as whether, whether they walk into it. So here's what I want to do. Tonight I want to cover just two points. Tomorrow morning, two more points. And then I'll do the last, seven, the last three of seven points that I'll share just with the leaders in a very brief context tomorrow early afternoon. But here's what I want to do. I want to give you some principles that'll help you figure out whether or not you want to be a wilderness, desert Christian, or a promised land uh, Christian. So if you have the handout, I sent them ahead. If you have one, you'll see that there are seven slots you can write in. Here's number one. I want to call number one the desire principle. The desire principle. Joshua was charged with the responsibility of talking, of taking the people of God into the promised land, but to get there required the implication or the implementation of seven important principles. We would all do well to implement these principles and claim what God has in store for each of us. Here's the first of the principles, the desire principle. Write that on line one if you're writing. The desire principle. And I want you to think with me about some questions. Things like, do you really, the, the theme of this meeting is changing lanes. Do you really want to change lanes? Do you really want to go somewhere you haven't been? Do you really want to experience something you haven't experienced? Do you really want a shift of some, reason, of some sort in your life? Do you want difference or is sameness okay? I want you to think about if you are, are challenged in some way, if you are wanting to believe for something you've never experienced, how bad do you want it? Because God doesn't make people change. He invites people to change. He's dealt with people for a very long time. And he knows that people don't necessarily like change. We can get real comfortable with sameness. Even if sameness isn't great, at least we know it. At least we're used to it. At least we're not threatened by it. At least it doesn't stir up anything. Sameness is easy. So I want you to think about that. If you have a habit that you really don't like in your life, do you really want to kick it? Do you really want to? I'm tired of being this way. It can be a vice of smoking or drinking or, or whatever. It can, be, it can be an attitude. Do I want to stay as mean as I've been? Cranky, irritable? Do I really want to keep this disposition? You really need to think through how badly do you want it. Now, I want, you, I want to 
show it to you in terms of this passage. So if God's people are now in a wilderness and 40 years parents decided to live in the wilderness, I want you to look at why they decided to, why they decided to do that. I need a reader, another reader, to go to the book of Numbers. And I need that person to stand up and read Numbers 13, verses 26 through 30. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron, and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran, at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told them and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified, very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Hanak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Did you see what happened? Ten, twelve spies had gone over to look at the promised land and come back with the report. Moses' thinking was, They'll, the people will hear about how wonderful that land is, and they'll say, all right, great, let's go. What happened? Of the 12 spies, 10 of them came back with a negative report. They said, yeah, it does flow with milk and honey, just like we heard, and it does have wonderful fruit. Took two, one, uh, two men um, it took two men to carry back one vine of grapes. It's marvelous. And then they used a faith-destroying word, but. But there are giants over there. But there are walled cities over there. But. There are people who compare to them, we look like grasshoppers. Pause, question. How do they know what they look like to the giant? None of them went, excuse me, Mr. Giant, what do I look like to you? Nobody did it. They assumed Compared to how big they are, we got to look like a bunch of grasshoppers. There's walled cities we can't penetrate. There are giants we couldn't defeat in a battle. And, and so while it is wonderful, we can't do it. Ten of the 12 spies came back with that report. Caleb was the only one who spoke up on behalf of himself and Joshua, and she just read it. Silence the people said, what are you talking about? We should go right now. We shouldn't be here having a business meeting. Church people love having business meetings. I don't know how y'all church operates. So I won't mess with y'all. In my church, we don't have business meetings. We have information meetings. 
or I give them information. Here's what God said. Here's what we're doing. Here's where the money is. Here's what, and bam, we're moving. I don't need to hear, you can't even figure out your income tax. Why I need to hear what you think about where we're going as a church. I've never done that in, in, as a pastor. Oh, I give you all the information. You, you deserve information. You deserve an accounting of what's happening and so all that within reason. Can't know what, what my salary is, nothing like that, but you can know some stuff. Because the fact of the matter is, we need to focus on what we're supposed to focus on. What is God doing? And what has he called us to do? And so, Caleb spoke up and said, we should go. Stop having this meeting. Let's go right now. But the ten drowned him out. No, we can't do it. We'll be destroyed over there. God himself got sick of them. When you read the next chapter, Numbers 14, God called Moses on the carpet. He said, you can, you can end that, you can adjourn that meeting because I'm not taking any of these faithless people over there. I have promised them a wonderful inheritance and they have declared war on what I said. So, they love the wilderness, that's where they're going to live and die. God had to raise up the next generation, their kids. And that's why Moses, that's why Joshua and Caleb were the two people who God promised. Because y'all have faith and y'all saw that the promise could be fulfilled. I'm going to keep you alive and strong. Have you ever read that? Joshua 14. Caleb is in his 80s saying, I'm as strong today as I was back when I first spied out this land. Oh, senior citizen, ready to kick behind. Why? Because faith doesn't know any numbers. Faith only knows what God said. That's all he knows. God said it's ours. He said it's the promised land, not the maybe land. Not that if everything worked out, I'm trying to, I'm trying to work something out. Don't, don't, don't quote me, but I'm, I'm working on something. That's not God. So you've got to decide what are God's promises to you, and are you willing to say amen to his promises. By the way, if you've ever looked at 2 Corinthians 1, right around verse 20, it's an off-misunderstood passage spoken a lot by Christians. The promises of God are yea and amen. Ever heard that? That's not what Paul said. The promises of God, when you look at it in its Greek form, some English Y'all got it from some poor English translation. They suggest the promises of God are yea and amen, as if the promise was both the yea and the promise was the amen. Now what it, Paul said, every promise of God, every promise God has ever made you to you is yes in Christ. If God makes a promise to you in Christ, it's a yes. Then he went on to say, 
And the amen is to be spoken by us. He said the yes, you got to say the amen. Because he can say yes and you say but. That's what they did and stayed in the wilderness for it. God can say yes and you say wait a minute. God can say yes and you can say we don't have that money. God can say yes and you can say nobody will understand. There's all kinds of things you can say when you're supposed to say amen, which is an affirmative term. You know that. Amen means so let it be. I'm in sync. I'm in agreement. I'm down. That's what amen is. I'm down, God. You want to do that? I'm down. I'm with you. The problem with us is God says yes to a lot of things. And we put our thimble full of brains in God's business. And we decide it really won't work out. So I need to know what your desire is for your church. Are you satisfied with lineage as it is? Y'all want enough souls, don't need anybody more saved? Don't need any more folk coming to Christ? It's hard to park now. I don't need no more folk come. I've been to churches where that's the way they think. We don't need, we don't need more people in here. The folk who hold the, the, hold the, the, the little offices and stuff say, we don't need any new people in here come trying to take my job from me. I've been to churches like that. Where these new people come from? We didn't, we, we didn't ask for them. Who told you you were the one to decide who God wanted to bring into his church? But church people can do that. Church people can fight over stupid things. Not y'all, but people I know. Fight over ridiculous things. Have knockdown, drag out meetings over to whether you want to change the carpet. Instead of doing the work of the ministry, change has to be intentional. So if you want to go to the next level of anything in your personal life, in your corporate life, in your church life, you want to go to the next level. We always tell them, I'm going to the next level. Well, how are you going to get there? You got to be intentional. Nobody looks up on good change. No one does. No one goes from out of shape to in shape by accident. Who, oh, okay, well, I ask you, who do you know who was way out of shape, could hardly walk up the steps without huffing and puffing? And say, I'm tired of being out of shape. I'm going to get in shape. All right? God said, yes. You got to say the amen. You the one got to do the exercising. He's not going to do it for you. Change has to be intentional. You got to make the change. He'll give you the power. But you have to say the amen. Doesn't happen by accident. No good change happens by accident. You know, change happens usually two ways, either because we're inspired by vision 
or we're compelled by pain. That's what most people change. When they change, it's usually because of vision. They caught it. They're like, I got to get there. The other way people tend to change is the pain gets too great where they are. I can't keep this up. It hurts too much. You, you know that if you, if you know people who refuse to go to the doctor. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you see the symptoms, you say, you need to go get that checked out. That could be serious. Oh, no, I don't need, I don't need to go. They're probably afraid of the truth. So here's what it's going to take. If they can't be inspired by a vision of health, then they need, the old folks said, that right pain to hit them. There is a pain that can hit you that you say, I can't take this. This hurts too much. Then, if you weren't inspired by the vision of change, you're compelled by the pain. You ever met anybody who had to go to the doctor because they couldn't take the pain anymore? The pain drove them to do what vision couldn't get them to do on the positive side. And thank God, if pain forces you to do what you should have done all along, then let it be your motivator. Same is true in your life. Whether it's your vocation, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your parenting, if something's wrong in your life, be inspired by a vision of that being different or be compelled by the pain. I can't take this anymore. It's the desire principle. There's a hymn I grew up, I, I grew up in a church that sang all kinds of music. My dad was my pastor, and he, he loved all kinds of music. I grew up in a church that sang hymns and anthems and real high church stuff, and then they sang Andre Crouch and gospel and, and all that. I'm talking about the early gospel days. Oh, happy day and, you know, Andre Crouch, stuff like that. That's when I got saved. We were singing that kind of stuff. And, and he told us when we young people started getting saved, he said, no, y'all still going to sing these hymns, but I'm going to let you on Youth Sunday. Y'all can learn how to sing your, your, your gospel. And that's what we did. Our church would go from high church anthems to get down boogie and nothing flat. We did it all. And I've, I've had an appreciation all my Christian life for good hymns. One is a hymn called Higher Ground. There's a verse that says, I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. So praying as I'm onward bound, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land. A higher plane than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Second verse says, my heart has no desire to stay where doubts arise and fears dismay. Though some may dwell where these abound, they're okay with the wilderness. My prayer, my aim, higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land. Higher ground, higher plain than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Do you want to go higher than you are now in some area of your life? As a church, as a family, as an individual, 
Is there something you see? I'm not there, but God knows I want to get there. Well, how bad do you? That's the question. Because you won't get there by accident. One more thing, and I'll let you go for the night. The second principle, after the desire principle, is the departure principle. Departure principle, that's line two. The departure principle. Moses, verse one of Joshua one, we read it earlier. Moses, my servant, is dead. Good man, but he's dead. Meekest man, he's called in one place in scripture, meekest man on the face of the earth but he's dead. Got us out of Egypt, but he's dead. Got us through the Red Sea, but he's dead. Good things and good people die. When they die, you're still here. So what are you going to do? They're gone, you're here. The death of something good or someone good in your life can produce a dichotomous dilemma that you've got to figure out how to deal with. By that, I mean it creates a dichotomy because I love them, I needed them, I wanted them, I'm, I'm where I am because of them. But they're not here anymore. Now what am I supposed to do? Let me suggest to you, there are two things you do when good things or good people die in your life. First thing is, honor them. Honor them. Second thing is, bury them. One of our problems is, we have difficulty sometimes departing from things that were good, served a great purpose in our lives. We got so used to it, we came, became so dependent on it that it was tough to let it go. You ever had somebody you love, they die and you just weep and just, I can't believe they're gone. I had a dear mentor in my early years in California, called him often. He encouraged me, got me through lots of things. I found myself at his funeral. And like, now what am I supposed to do? It creates a dilemma. They served a good purpose. Now they're gone. What do you do? I learned, and the Bible is clear. You do two things. You honor. Now, Israel honored Moses after his death. They did well. The Bible says in the book of Deuteronomy that for 30 days they did nothing but mourn the death of their leader. For a full month, they did nothing but weep and well and cry and tell stories and hug and, and just reminisce. 30 full days, they did nothing but that. Church folk got to get good at mourning. Sometimes we try, to sh we try to sing over stuff we need to grieve. We try to rejoice. I've heard, I've heard church folk fuss at a funeral. This is a celebration. No, it's not only a celebration. It's mourning a, the loss of somebody. 
who meant a lot. Yes, celebrate where they are. They're in a better place. It's a saint of God. They've gone home. But don't tell me I can't cry. I told my church years ago, all the work I put in for some of y'all, all the counseling, all the stuff I got to deal with y'all, when y'all hear I'm going, you better cry. I told him I want weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Because if a life was well lived and touched you and helped you, of course you ought to mourn. I heard, a, I heard one of these TV preachers say there's a level, one of these high, known for his high level of faith. Monstrous his business, his church is, and all that, and then one of those hyper faith people. And he said, I, "There's a level of faith you can get to where you don't, where you don't sorrow." I was, and it was, I was watching him on TV. I spoke out to the TV. I said, "Yeah, there's a Greek word for that, baloney." <laughs> Care what kind of faith you have. There's nothing in the Bible that says you shouldn't mourn when the saints go home. Nothing. You see the saints wailing over the martyrs, over the people who gave their lives. You're supposed to cry. We think God gave you tear ducts for. So you got them honor. But the second thing you have to do is bury. I don't care how much you loved them. Put them in the ground. Because once the life leaves them, the body returns to the dust from whence it came. I don't care how much you loved them. You can't carry them around now. I'm not ready to let them go. Well, you better. Because that corpse can't help you. And after a while, it's going to stink up the joint. Because the life is gone from it. And you're now mourning and fixating over something that has nothing but decay in it. And so we've got to learn to have the courage to bury after we've had the integrity to honor. You've got to have the integrity enough to honor, but you've got to have the courage enough to bury. Let it go. Let some people go. Let some traditions go. It used to be, oh, we used to do, that's wonderful. But if it doesn't fit life today, let it go. When I got to California, I came to an existing church. And I didn't want to come to an existing church because God had given me a vision of a church that would eventually grow large. He had shown me that that it was going to grow large and that he was going to answer the prayer I had prayed for years as an associate dad under my uh, associate uh, pastor under my dad. I, I, my heart was burdened to be a soul winner and a discipler. And the Lord grew a vision in me of a church. I didn't know where in the country it would be that he was going to answer that prayer I had prayed for years and he was going to make me a soul winner and a discipler. Meanwhile, he said, work with your dad 
help fulfill his vision. Because one of the things I learned in my years in Philadelphia is you can't operate under the anointing until you learn to cooperate under the anointing. Some people want to be operators, but they're lousy cooperators. None of y'all, but people I know. They want to operate. I want to run it. I want y'all to do what I want. And they don't understand. I was an assistant pastor. And my anointing was growing, and the saints saw it. And some of them said, you, you need to, you need, your dad's old now. He, he, you know, moving off the scene. You need to just go ahead and take this try. I said, I'm take, this is his work. God didn't tell me to build what I'm supposed to do on the back of my dad. And I had to rebuke people. How dare you try to get me to split my daddy's church? And I stayed there and worked with him until the Lord released me and he blessed me to go. And I came across the country and I got over here and I realized now I have the authority to operate because I was a good cooperator. And I had to learn to depart a good ministry so that I could do what was in my heart. And I came to an existing church because God gave me these folks, and they said, if you, as long as, you know, you stick with the word, we'll be, we'll be with you. I said, yeah, but y'all are an existing church. It was a little church. I came to a church of 34 people. They had had a split before I got there, and, they, and it was down to 34. I said, how's a little church split? They do. That's, huh? Ain't, it wasn't but 60 of y'all to begin with. In the world, a little church going to split. But it did. So the fact of the matter is, they said, we're, we're ready to follow. And I said, all right, but I'm telling you now, it's going to be some changes. So in the early years, we had to have the courage to make some changes. I, for one, it was East Palo Alto Church of God. And I said, you know what? God said, I'm going to be a soul winner and a discipler. I mean, we're going to reach a lot of people. So we want to make this church easy for people to not misidentify who we are. I said, so if we keep carrying the brand name Church of God, I'm, I'm in a denomination called Church of God. It's headquartered in Anderson. There are several different Church of God. So, uh, but this particular one is headquartered in Anderson, Indiana. And, um, and I said, when black people hear Church of God, they think Church of God in Christ because that's the largest black denomination that has Church of God in its trade name. I said, we're not Church of God in Christ. I, I love Church of God in Christ folk. I got a lot of Church of God in Christ friends. I preach in some of their churches, but we're not them. They, they loud and they have long services and they hoop all the time in their preaching. And I said, all those things are fine, but it's not us. Nothing wrong with them. I, when I preached at Kojic churches back in the day, I'd hoop because that's what they do. So I'd get to the end of my message. I'd go into E-flat because <laughs> that's, that's what you do. you at Kojic. But I said, but as a pastor, the Lord has called me to use my gift of teaching. And so I'm not going to be hooping and hollering, We're not, and we don't do long services. And, and all that, and the, and, and the garb, and all the big hats and stuff. We, 
I said, nothing wrong with it. That's fine for them. You got to learn to not judge people. But at the same time, don't let them put, don't let them put you in their binds. And I said, no, we're not, we're not church guy in Christ. So we need to get rid of this trade name because it's going to misidentify us. I said, we're going to be Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. Let me tell you why. Abundant Life, John 10.10, 10, came to not only to give us eternal life, but abundant life. Christian, because that distinguishes us from Muslims and everybody else. And fellowship, we are a people called to be in relationship and covenant with one another. Thus the name, Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. All good? Yeah. Any questions? I told you I, I, had vote, I didn't have voting means I information meetings. Any questions? Well, I said, and another change we're going to make, we're going to make casual dress okay for Sunday mornings. I said, because if we're going to reach unchurched people, unchurched people don't want to dress up on the weekend. If they have a church where they got, if they got a job where they got to dress up during the week, come the weekend, they don't want to put them clothes back on. Does it go to church? Really? I said, so we got to make it okay. To now, this was, a, this was a small black church I had taken, 1989. And so I'm having this little business meeting three, minute, three months after being their pastor. We had an after Sunday morning business meeting. We all in this business meeting with our church clothes on. That's all we've ever come to church on Sunday morning with, church clothes. I was there with a suit and tie in July. <laughs> Why? Because that's what church folk do. The sisters were sitting up there, their nice, nice dresses. Some of them had their hats and all that. It was great. I said, we got to make it okay to dress casually when you come to church. And so I made the case. If I, I took them to 1 Corinthians 9. We got to become all things to all men, that by all means we may win some. So dressing can't be a barrier. And so starting next Sunday, it's okay to not dress up. If you want to dress up, you can. I'm not outlawing dress up, dressing up. But you don't have to. If you want to be cash, come on. Then one lady had to curse at Pastor, does that mean the women can wear slacks? Watch this. If you've been, if you've been to church, to, to black church historically, that's a thing. The black church you don't, women don't wear pants on Sunday to church. Period. And so this sister had the courage to say, is that okay? And I said, yeah. I said, and I know why you ask. I said, because you, like me, have heard messages preached by black preachers against women wearing slacks. I said, you've also heard them preach against women wearing makeup, women wearing jewelry. I said, yeah. So, all right, well, let's, let's end the pants discussion right here. Now, I know I've been around church folk all my life. Six minutes, I'm going to give it back to the pastor, and I'll pick this up in the morning. I know what he preached on. Deuteronomy chapter 22. She said, that's right. I said, let me quote to you what he told you out of Deuteronomy 22. A woman shall not wear that which pertains to a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are an abomination to the Lord our God. 
That's what he said. I said, all right, let me ask you a question. Where in the Bible do you see women wearing pants? He said, they're not in there. He said, then how'd he preach against pants? And pants not in the Bible. Because he decided that pants are a man's garment. I said, well, aren't there women's slacks that are very different from men's slacks because they don't have a zipper that men absolutely need? He said, yeah. I said, so pants can be made for women or men. I said, so if you come to church on, on Sunday with slacks, are you going to put on women's slacks or men's slacks? She didn't have to answer. Eric, everybody in the meeting said, I get it. Said the, that was a statute given to Israel, not given to the church. Church wasn't in, in existence. Given to Israel, and it was one of their statutes. And it was a statute against cross-dressing. Back then, nobody wore pants, men or women. Everybody wore robes. And there was a woman's robe and there was a man's robe. And that statute was against cross-dressing. Meaning, if you're a man, don't try to be a woman. If you're a woman, don't try to be a man. That's what was an abomination. And it wasn't given to you anyway. It was given Old Testament Israel. I said, anybody have any questions? Oh, we understand. I said, so starting next week, if you sisters won't wear your slacks, come on to the house of God. If your brothers don't want to wear all these suits and ties and stuff like God, God didn't make you wear it. We all just grew up, if you're little church kids, we grew up with church clothes. I'm talking about the old days. I'm a baby boomer. Back my generation, people born between 46 and 64. We, we had church clothes. I had a section of my closet. Those are my church clothes. But now, come on to the house of God. The next Sunday, my head usher had the cutest pantsuit on at that door. Well, she was ready for change. And let me tell you something. Our church grew very slowly. So those changes didn't result in instant growth. It took me seven years to get from 34 to 250. Now, that's wonderful growth. By average church, the average church in America has less than 60 people in it when you average them all out. But I wasn't comparing it to that. I'm comparing it to a vision where God said I was going to reach thousands. And I said, well, I've been doing seven years of my best preaching and leading, and we've gone from, 20, from 34 to 250. I was depressed every Sunday. Every Sunday. I'm like, where are these people? God, you said they were coming. I've taught the people. I've helped them with their changes. We, we changed things, made it conducive. God didn't tell me when they were coming. He just told me that they were coming. And I needed to be faithful. 
and I needed to disciple the people I had and not look overlook them because I'm worried about getting more. Take good care of the sheep you got. Long story short, year eight was the first time I saw God begin to bring to pass what I thought was going to start happening immediately. And from year eight to year 20, when I resigned from that church, for the last 12 years, there was never a weekend when no one got saved. 12 straight years. No matter what I was preaching, I'd be preaching a revelation series. People get saved every Sunday. It's not about our formulas. It's about his promise. And if you have a desire to live according to his promise and to step into what he has for you and you are willing to depart things that aren't working anymore, you'll see movements of God in you. We'll pick it up in the morning. Let me give it back to the pastor. All right, just going to pray over you. Now listen, I want you to not only think about, go to bed tonight thinking about those questions, but I want you to say, Holy Spirit, reveal to me your plans, even if I'm not aware of them. And that's what I'll talk about in the morning as my third and fourth principles. But even now, I want you to say, God, I don't want to miss another. If I've missed some stuff in these first years of my life, I don't want to miss another thing that you have ordained for me. I don't want a bunch of unclaimed freight in heaven because I didn't have enough faith or willingness to depart. And so if you are ready to claim it, I want to agree in prayer with you. Father, our hearts have no desire to stay where doubts arise and fears dismay. Though some may dwell where these abound, our prayer, our aim is higher ground. Lord, lift us up and let us stand by faith on heaven's table land. A higher plane than we've ever found. Lord, plant our feet on higher ground. Begin to speak to our hearts even tonight about the things you have for us that we might step into them and experience your greatness in our lives. For this, we'll give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.